Hello, and welcome to another of the Sitcom Club Summer Spin-Off Podcasts. I'm Heiho Munkan Co. With me is your old pal Ocho. Hello. What are we on about today, then? Don't ask me. This is your idea. And I am stumbling about a little because this is something you noticed in some of our off-cast conversations. You noticed similarities between something that interests you but not me, and vice versa. Indeed. But I'm not sure what the similarities are. Well, we're about to find out, and if this podcast lasts for eight minutes, then you'll know that there weren't very many similarities. Today we're talking comic books, that's your interest, and professional wrestling, mine. You might think that there's no connection between the two whatsoever. Well, there have been comics about wrestling. There have indeed, yes. Didn't Big Daddy have a strip in one of those sub-Bino-type affairs? Not that I recall, I mean, quite This is what I know about wrestling. Quite possibly. World, World of Sport, Saturdays. That is as much as I know about wrestling. First of all, let's get this whole similarity or not out of the way. What I would perceive as one particular trait in which the two are similar is that you have, at their core, a very basic message. And that is you have the eternal struggle of good versus evil. Now we're talking mainstream superhero comics then. I guess we are, and you've got, I presume you're going to tell me that you've Neil got... Neil Gaiman has said, who's a famous comic writer, that comics are a medium that are mistaken for a genre. I've heard people say, I don't like comics, I'm not interested about superheroes. Which is like saying, I'm not interested in television, I don't like soap operas. Yeah, I know what I mean. But I suppose you would say that it is, for whatever reason, it's fallen into... So we're narrowing it down, are we narrowing it down even further to the big two? Mainstream superhero comics are dominated, it's not quite a duopoly, but they are for the most part dominated by two publishers, Marvel and DC. There are other companies, Dynamite, IDW, Image, Dark Horse, but a lot of the talk, a lot of the heat is generated by DC and Marvel. And one of the things that makes talking about comics so difficult and so annoying is the perceived and actual differences and the way that people like to draw these as like team lines. I like DC and I hate Marvel, vice versa. And sometimes the talk never really gets anywhere because somebody's arguing about what they think the other side is like rather than what they actually are. And this talk has then changed the nature. At least one of the companies has tied itself in a knot because of what it thinks people think it's like. Well, that's interesting you say that because that's similarity number two for those who are keeping count because, and this is a potential glimpse into the comic book future for you if this happens for yourself, for years and years and years in the world of professional wrestling, and I'm talking about America here, you had a regional system, you had a territory system where you had promoters who would operate exclusively in perhaps a particular state or more often than not a particular locality within a particular state. But as time went on, and particularly with the onset of cable TV, eventually things boiled down to the point where you had two big companies. And the World Wrestling I think Federation... I know their names. Oh, go, go on then. I've just given you one anyway, but yeah, you can have WWF that. WWF and WCW. Now, that's correct. Now, WWF is now known as WWE, and the reason for that is a little dispute with the World Wildlife Fund. So, <laughs> yes, there's WWF, which has its roots in the territorial system, but over the last 30-plus years has been owned and operated by an entrepreneur by the name of Vince McMahon, and it was his father before him who controlled the company. And the opposition was 
as you say, WCW, and that was owned by Ted Turner. And so the story goes, because in Ted Turner's early days as cable TV operator, and the days even before he started CNN, he was running a cable outlet called WTBS out of Atlanta, and it was the professional wrestling which effectively saved him. It was the wrestling which was the only show on the network that was getting really good ratings. And so he sort of felt an allegiance towards it. And when the company that provided the wrestling was in trouble, he stepped in, bought the company, and then ran it for the next 13 years. And as time went on, you did actually see the companies sort of change their product, sometimes sort of emulating the other one, until eventually in 2001, WCW pulled the plug. I mean, it was part of the fallout from the AOL Time Warner merger. The people now running TNT decided that they didn't want professional wrestling, just didn't fit their image anymore. And so Vince McMahon actually bought WCW. He bought the trademarks and the tape library and so on. So maybe that'll happen one day. Maybe Marvel will buy DC or vice versa. And then well, you're sort of... Well, no, they won't. Well, how do you know this? Oh, it's unlikely because DC Comics is owned by Warner. So to buy DC Comics, Disney, who now on Marvel, would somehow have to persuade Warner to part with DC Comics. Or Disney would have to buy Warner. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Disney AOL Time Warner? What a behemoth that would be. Well, no, it sounds more like it would be sort of changes at the top at Warner, and they decided that they were going to shed themselves of some of their interests, and decided that a few bits of the company were up for sale. Like ITV, for example, went on like a little buying spree a while ago, and for some bizarre reason, ended up buying Friends Reunited. There'd be some very serious questions asked, though, in a situation where Disney owned Marvel and DC. Well, would they actually continue to run them as two separate entities, or would they just merge them? Well, the slice of the markets they would have would be quite frightening. So, WWE is older, yes? WWE, no. Okay, well, little, tiny little... Who's, who's older? Who's, who's the older company? Well, they both are. Oh. Because it depends on who you believe. So, a little, little potted history. From the early part... I'm talking about sort of 1905, thereabouts, early part of the 20th century. Most wrestling promoters in the US aligned themselves with something which was initially called the National Wrestling Association and later on became the National Wrestling Alliance. And that lineage was appropriated by WCW in 1988 when Ted Turner bought them, even though, to be fair, they were taking some liberties with that because the NWA is a separate entity and still exists to this day. In 1963... The New York promoter, Vince McMahon Sr., had a falling out with the NWA and then decided to effectively go independent as what was then the WWWF. So technically speaking, you would say that as a single entity, the WWE, as it is now, or WWE, is the oldest. But of course, bearing in mind, WCW as an entity only lasted for 13 years and is now defunct, whereas the NWA still exists to this day, but not in any great way and that is over 100 years old okay then what are the perceived differences between the two entities okay well to fill in one of the blanks in place of wcw you now have running sort of a similar style and with some of the same personnel you have the rather inappropriately named tna more on that later on but wwe has traditionally certainly for the last 30 years or so, when Vincent Mann Jr. took it over, it has promoted what I would naively call the comic book style. In other words, you had somebody like Hulk Hogan, who was effectively Superman. And then you'd have him 
squaring off against the villain. So you'd have somebody like, for example, The Undertaker, who, again, to me, naively, looks like he comes straight out of a comic book. So you have these sort of figures who are basically portraying characters and quite often didn't go under their real name. And this is a product which was being marketed to kids. And so you tend to get relatively sort of straightforward matches, which didn't necessarily put a great deal of emphasis on athleticism, but more were about storytelling. Whereas WCW and before the NWA, and to a sort of extent TNA these days, although not quite, they tended to promote more the athletic contest. Their demographic was a little bit older. They were portraying it as a legitimate sporting contest with people either using their real name or going under a pseudonym, but one that wasn't absurd. Now, I heard that little giggle there from yourself when I said legitimate sporting contest. Let me explain the dirty secret about professional wrestling. I'm actually going to tell you a little tale about how I found out about the dirty secret of professional wrestling. The dirty secret, of course, is that wrestling is to use wrestling speak, and by which I mean carny which developed out of the fairground and so on. And we've actually used the expression. You mean Polari? Not quite, no. no okay. I'm not going to go with Julian no, because, Sandy. Can I just drag things back to comics for a moment? Go on then, yes. <laughs> there was a great moment a few years ago in which Dick Grayson, who was originally Robin, I'm sure even you know that from the telly, from TVAM strikes, took over as Batman. He'd grown up. Now, of course, Dick Grayson had been a circus aerialist that's part of his origin, which means he knew his circus slang. So there's this moment when they're coming up against a bunch of villains who are definitely from the circus. So you have this magnificent <laughs> moment where Batman bursts in on the villains and says, I rocker the jib, Toby. Who's your gaffer? <laughs> Batman speaking Polari. That's a beautiful moment in literature, frankly. <laughs> well, we have used the expression kayfabe on... Second club before and kayfabe, as we've explained previously, basically means kayfabe. It's not back slang, is it? It's a little bit like Verlan, which is a French slang where you turn the syllables inside out. Kayfabe comes from be fake, doesn't it? Yes, kayfabe basically is a term that's used when you are describing anything related to professional wrestling, trying to maintain its image as a legit contest. I never grew up with this idea. For some reason, I was always told that it was, at least to a certain extent, fake. I wasn't ever a big fan of wrestling, but sometimes you're in the house on a Saturday. Oh no, BBC showing Grandstand. <laughs> BBC Two and Channel Four are probably showing documentaries about Shostakovich and Jackson Pollock. Maybe something from the National Film Board of Canada. Indeed. ITV, yes, it is World of Sport, but it's wrestling. I can watch wrestling. And I was aware that this was, to a certain extent, set up. I was never entirely sure. The image in my mind was that sort of like there'd be two minutes of real fight to get you to an agreed point. Apparently the whole thing was choreographed. This is the thing. As yourself and everybody else, I saw World of Sport, professional wrestling. But actually, I got into American professional wrestling when I was 14. Actually, by the time initially I was looking around for a little sport to take an interest in along with football. And my local video shop. I didn't have Scott Cricket. Well, in Scotland? No. <laughs> my local video shop, because I didn't have Sky TV at the time, my local video shop, however, had all the WWF videotape releases. So I got a couple of them out, and the first show I ever saw actually was one that was at the Albert Hall. 
I can't put my finger on what it was. I mean, when we talk about comic books in a moment, you may be the same. You can't quite tell why it is that you like what you like, but for some reason I was drawn towards it. And like yourself, I'm thinking, okay, well, obviously I can see Hulk Hogan versus The Undertaker is a piece of performance art and a playing characters and so on and so on. I get that. Of course I do. However, reading magazines like Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I realised that there was a world beyond WWF as it was then. And as I read these tales of people from yesteryear and so on, I thought, well, there's more to this than meets the eye. Because looking at bills or cards from the 60s and the 70s, you didn't really have too much of the sort of outlandish characters. And you had occasionally, you'd have somebody like Gorgeous George, for example, was well known in the States back in the day. And he was a flamboyant character. And he really sort of put on the the whole show doing a sort of... Hey, I just remembered... Jonathan Ross interviewing somebody called Johnny B. Bad. Yes. Johnny B. Bad. Yeah, Johnny B. Bad. He reminded me of Little Richard. Yes. That was, well, that's right. That's exactly the gimmick that he was doing. And he later performed as Mark Meadow in WWF. And actually, he was a Golden Gloves boxer before he became a wrestler. As I'm looking into the sort of history of it and what have you, and there's all these different territories which eventually have sort of merged, sort of ITV style, sort of merged into one big entity, oh. or two as it was. <laughs> I started thinking, what is this all about? I mean, it didn't always look like WWF on Sky. In the past, it looked as if it was the real deal. So what is this all about? And within a few months of taking an interest in it, I got hold of a copy of Mr. TV himself, Jackie Palo's autobiography, which is called You Grunt, I'll Groan from 1985. This could have sent me a couple of ways, having read this. This could have just completely switched me off from wrestling altogether, or it could have had the effect that it did have. But either way, I wasn't going to look at it in the same way after reading that book. That book was basically my education into the business. As he said, bearing in mind this is 1985 when it's still on World of Sport, so this caused a bit of a scandal at the time. As he said, right at the top of the book, professional wrestling is a work to use wrestling speak. It's a fix. It's always a fix. The matches are predetermined. Now, how they're predetermined has actually changed over the years. We'll come on to that later on. But he opened the book giving an example of the referee going into the dressing room and going through the results with them. And then the floor manager ran in and said, the mics are live. The cameramen heard everything you just said. Now, at this time, ITV was covering the wrestling as an outside broadcast. They didn't have an internal television crew as they do in the States nowadays. So they had to sort of pretend and sort of go down the mic saying, ho, ho, had you there, fellas, and then had to rewrite the entire card and change every result to try and protect (laughs) the business. But Jackie Palo described in the book how moves are performed. He described how you earn the same money whether you win, lose, or draw. He described the different types of matches that you would have, the different ways in which you would get over with the crowd. He described all manner of tales about just life on the road and so on. And it was fabulous. It was absolutely fascinating little title. And that left me with more of an appreciation for it than I had before I started. And the tales I've heard subsequently, I mean, one particular well-known wrestler in the 1960s, believe it or not, didn't actually clue in his family. So he went out to Ah. work every night and came back and they thought that he was actually legitimately fighting for a living. 
Are you aware of any wrestlers who lived in Bradford? Not off the top of my head, no. Because it, I've just remembered now, and this is probably why, even as a child, I knew it was a fix. I never knew to what extent. But my dad told me about some wrestler getting his clock cleaned. Really humiliating defeat and really being very badly hurt on World of Sport on the Saturday. And then some little old lady who always watched the wrestling saw him on the Sunday walking around with not a care in the world. <laughs> Hit him. Wow. She suddenly realised it was all a fake. Well, now here's the thing. In order to, bearing in mind that a little bit different in Britain because, yeah, you've got Max Crabtree or whoever the promoter uh, would have been. Northern men. <laughs> well, you would have had their show going out across the whole of the UK. Different story in the States where wrestlers back in the day were local celebrities. They may not be known at all outside of their own territory, but everybody knew who they were in their locality. So the lengths to which they had to go to then protect the business is quite remarkable. Some of the stories are actually quite tragic, to be honest. I mean, there's one case of plane crash which killed some wrestlers and one guy survived the crash and the promoter actually got him out of the hospital and got him to appear at the next show as if to say to everybody, look, I'm okay, I'm walking about, so I couldn't have been on that plane with the other guys because there was a mixture of heel and face wrestlers involved. And heel and face wrestlers did not travel together. They never traveled together. They were never seen in public together. If somebody was going to have the clock cleaned, for example, then they would be sent home and told not to go out in public. And if they appeared at all, they'd have like dark glasses on and so on to sell their injury in the local area. Back in the day, this was not something that was done with a sort of nod and a wink and as if, you know, everybody's sort of in on the joke. It wasn't like that at all. People really genuinely believed that these guys were genuinely fighting for a living. You get people with suspicions and so on, particularly people who had been perhaps involved in things like boxing and so on. And if they see guys, that's why you don't tend to get a closed fist in wrestling because, you know, you, there's only so many times you can punch somebody without having some sort of swelling appear. And so that would then draw people's suspicion. But there would go some lengths to, to try and protect the business. And it's interesting to see how it's evolved to the point now where I think today's product is probably a lot more like what I would describe as a comic books because... There's an interesting story as to how it came about, but now the promoters don't attempt to maintain kayfabe. I mean, they even release DVDs of their performers talking about their matches. You know, here's the actor behind the character that you've seen, for example. You think that's a good thing? Personally, no, I don't. I think that things have gone to the point now where some of the storylines are so absurd that you think it's impossible to suspend your disbelief. And also, if you... Sometimes, for example, you'll get situations where you'll see promos for, say, the charity work that WWE does in the middle of a program. And it's almost like you're being asked to switch on disbelief, switch off disbelief several times in the space of a three-hour show. And it doesn't really work like that. You don't get Hugh Jackman. You don't get him suddenly sitting there talking about his role in the middle of an X-Men film. You know, you get that elsewhere, but you don't get it during the film. The reason that that actually happened was actually a money-saving device. Because back in the day, when it was still a facade, so to speak, the promoters actually had to pay the local state athletic commission to do things like drug testing and so on. 
And eventually Vince McMahon said, look, said publicly, we are a show. So therefore you can cross us off your books. We don't need to participate in this anymore. That was quite a revelation, even as late as 1989, but it still sort of put a full stop on that whole period. Just to emphasize, I shouldn't really have to emphasize, it should be obvious from the way I'm talking about it that I'm a fan of the, the genre. So I don't have a low opinion of the people involved, but just to make it clear that when I'm talking about it being a fix, I'm not talking about that in a derogatory sense. I'm not talking about it as if, therefore, it cheapens the product or it's not worthy or anything like that at all. These guys are incredible athletes, legitimately amazing athletes who take risks with every single move that they perform and every single move that they perform, if it's performed badly, can cause you injury at worst, can cause paralysis. So we're not talking about just a silly little clown fight. We're talking about something which has evolved over decades and centuries and so on and has got to the point now where, you know, if you're going to step into the ring and actually perform, you need to know what the hell you're doing. I've known people who've actually gone through wrestling training and most people don't stay the course because it is a, it takes an incredible toll on the body to actually be able to perform. And of course, these guys are doing this every single night as well. So I could have gone out of the way with that, but I ended up having more of an appreciation for it than before. And even though I don't particularly like the current product, I don't really watch the current product, to be honest, I still am interested in the behind the scenes bits and pieces. And I'm still interested in more than anything. I'm interested just to hear people who've been involved in the business talk about the business. And there's quite a lot of that going on these days. A lot of the, the guys who were prominent sort of 20 years ago, some of them have podcasts of their own now. Some of them do Q&A sessions. And I described on the show previously meeting one of my uh, idols, Jim Cornette, recently in Glasgow. I think that you've mentioned to me, Ocho, before that you don't necessarily go big on the current comic book scene yourself. Well, what happened with me? I think I'm possibly less of an expert on comics than you are on wrestling. And this puts me at a great risk because I'm now on the internet talking about comics and any slight mistake will be jumped upon because comics fans are scum. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just say that it's one of those areas, one of those geeky areas where really nasty arguments break out very, very easily over very, very small things. So I'm going to say up front, I will probably make mistakes. Do you watch WWE and WCW equally? Are you a fan of one more than the other, or one exclusively, and you're sort of aware of the other? When WCW was around, I was more of a fan of WCW. I slightly preferred their presentation because it was a little bit more adult-oriented and had a bit more of the athleticism over the characterization that was just my preference today i mean i've seen tna as a badly booked product and a bad alternative to wcw but at least it still deals with mature sort of storylines and so on whereas wwe right now is 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 really i would say kids product so it's not one that i can really get into so i'm going to say i'm going to suggest that you probably did you ever have a preference between dc and marvel originally i was exclusively dc and that came about simply because DC had Batman. I was in a shop in Scotland during a summer holiday, saw Batman comic. Oh, Batman comic. I haven't seen these for ages. It was actually a British reprint title. So it was reprinting, it was a late 80s title, but reprinting late 70s, early 80s Batman stories. So I bought that. And because this had been made as a good jumping on point for Batman stories, 
and it then became a good jumping on point for DC stories. So I learned a lot about what they call the DC universe, all their other properties, how their other properties interact. And so it effectively locked me in to the DC universe because the Marvel universe was equally as complicated to learn about and learn about who's who, who's what and when and why and in what way. It's a little bit like trying to learn about jazz. Oh, so complicated and frightening. I've never really become a proper jazz fan because it seems like you have to know everything about everybody. You have to be able to know what kind of kit they're using in what size room. You meet people, not naming any names, Louis Barth, <laughs> who can tell everything from 10 seconds of a record. And it's frightening to me. I've named that tune in free. <laughs> so I got locked into the DC universe. Now, DC is essentially the older company. I mean, you can argue about the history of Marvel and when it was Atlas and but DC is essentially the older company. It was the company that had Superman. So they arguably started the whole superhero thing. And because they had Superman, they were number one for the longest time. They built up a massive roster of characters. They ended up buying out other smaller companies, making their roster of characters even bigger. And for a while, after there were a number of scandals in the 50s about the suitability of comics for children, not just superhero comics... There was a much bigger variety of comic book story on offer. There was this whole question about crime comics and horror comics being so big amongst the kids. The crime comics and horror comics kind of got stifled. So superhero comics were left on top. They were kids stuff. And DC was on top of the kids stuff pile. They were very successful. They didn't really need to change their recipe. So they were peddling fairly simplistic and yet bizarre stories. Two kids in the 60s, Marvel changes their main writer stan lee was getting sick of his boss and sick of the work had been called upon to put out some more superhero stuff and it's like well you know, i'm gonna get out soon so i'll just do it to amuse me so he made the characters more neurotic and of course he had collaborators like steve ditko and jack kirby who did a certain percentage of the work and depending on who you ask depends on what answer you get but because they didn't have to worry about maintaining their position, they could do things differently. So Marvel became seen as being a little bit grittier and then a little bit more cosmic because they had Jack Kirby's wild ideas, man. So they were doing things differently and the superheroes didn't necessarily get along and they were flawed characters. Somebody said the great innovation of Marvel was that they actually made their characters two-dimensional. That meant that Marvel appealed to a slightly older crowd. They were getting the college kids buying their stuff and DC's then left looking a little bit Pollyanna-ish. DC's for kids. Ew. And that perception got set in stone. And it still exists to a certain extent. Despite the fact that DC had its own advantage, which is its massive roster of characters, its different universes within its universe, they originally had... How do we explain that Superman started in 1938 and now it's 1965? How do we explain it? Well, we just sort of say that those early Superman comics are on a different Earth. They'd also relaunched a number of their characters with different identities. Characters who had gone out of print, who'd sort of vanished. Oh, well, let's take that superhero name and attach it to essentially a new character with a similar power set. But let's not be bound by the old idea. What happened to the old idea? Oh, that was, uh, that was on the same Earth as old Superman and all that stuff. And then every time that they bought out a new company, oh, that's another Earth. So they ended up with this massive, weird cosmology. 
But that was one of their advantages. If you've got a, an old Earth that's not tied to the main continuity, you can you could kill characters. We can watch them get old. We can watch a new generation take over from them. So that was one of DC's advantages. They did try and catch up with Marvel's seeming edgier quality, try to make themselves more socially relevant. But it's never been enough for DC. And in the 80s, they had two big, big deconstructionist works. And I want to know if wrestling's ever gone through a big deconstruction. There's The Dark Knight Returns, which is, let's make Batman really, really mean. Let's make him psychologically messed up. Let's look at what it would really take to be Batman. What would he really be like? Oh, that was how people reacted to it. Some people thought, oh, this, this is marvellous how it satirises the quasi-fascist qualities of a, an urban vigilante. Later on, it's like, oh, God, the guy writing this actually believes this. <laughs> and Watchmen. Watchmen is the one that stands up a little better. But again, that's partially because there's even more freedom to it because their characters created only for the story. They're obvious archetypes and parallels of, of existing characters. But Watchmen is, right, what would superheroes be like if they're real? Well, they'd be pretty horrible. And so Watchmen just tears the, the whole thing apart. That was the big deconstruction. That was the big innovation. And that was done at DC. But the, the reconstruction never properly took off. We're still living in the shadow of this. And now we're sort of into like 30 years of bad copies of Watchmen, particularly from DC. I am getting a sort of similarity vibe here. And the expression that's coming to mind is the shoot. Now, the shoot in wrestling speak is to indicate something that's real and normally something which has perhaps happened that's off script, for example. To give you an example of this and then how this sort of fits in with this idea of deconstructing the product and so on. In 1997, I won't go into full details because it would take hours, but in 1997 there was a situation where one performer, Bret Hart, was about to leave WWF and go to the opposition, WCW. And he was their world champion at the time. And because WCW had previously managed to poach a performer from the other side who came across with her championship belt, labelled WWF and then proceeded to drop it into the trash can on WCW's TV show, WWF was worried that a similar situation could occur with Bret Hart. And it wasn't so much that they didn't trust him, it was that they didn't trust the people over at Turner to try and talk Bret Hart into some sort of similar situation. So Vince McMahon basically engineered a situation where he got the title off Bret Hart. And what he did was to arrange between the person that he was performing against, called Shawn Michaels, and the referee, he rewrote the finish to the match without Bret Hart's input. And this, I mean, this has been discussed and discussed and discussed ad infinitum, but the general consensus is that this did legitimately happen as portrayed, and it was a shoot, and Bret Hart was in the dark about how that match was going to end when it ended. Now, that caused such a reaction, particularly among the internet community, which was in its infancy back then, that ever since then, wrestling promoters have actually... And it sounds ridiculous to say it because it is a complete contradiction, but 
wrestling promoters have actually sometimes toyed with the idea of a worked shoot. Now, again, it sounds absurd to say it, because by definition, if it's a shoot, then it's not a work. But they have tried to sort of engineer situations where people watching the show are expected to go one step beyond in their suspension of disbelief. So you're supposed to, as a viewer, have a certain suspension of disbelief throughout the whole show. And then if something happens which you think, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen, then you're then sort of being asked to sort of upgrade your suspension of disbelief. This has, again, caused problems over the years because the more times then you do a worked shoot and try and perhaps deconstruct the product. I mean, there was one storyline, for example, in WCW back in the day, which involved having the writers of the product involved in the storylines of the program and having wrestlers on air complaining about the storylines that they were being given. But this is in the storyline. What level of reality is this supposed to be operating on? I know what you mean by that. And I think we're still at a point now where I think if somebody could close Pandora's box, I think they would. But of course, to be able to do that, if you can ever do that at all, it's going to be a generational thing. What you're actually asking people to do is to sort of forget about the past sort of 20 or 30 or 40 years and then say, okay, reset. Uh, and now we're, we're, we're back uh, and here are the rules and here are the rules will stay and so on. Yeah, the diminishing returns. I want to ask you about internal logic in the comics as well. <laughs> It depends who's writing. Well, exactly. Well, exactly. Let me give you one thing. If if it says anywhere in the credits written by Bob Haney, there isn't any internal logic. Get over <laughs> it. Okay. So, for example, is it normal to be able to read the thoughts of the characters? Is that a standard? Yes, it is normal. And, in fact, it's become a bit of a burden. It changed. Originally, it was the thought balloon, thought bubble. It looks like a cloud and it has little dots leading from it. So that's how you know it's a thought and not speech. And that went out of fashion, and then it became like text in a panel. Somehow, around about this time, after the deconstruction, this idea, comics are growing up. Oh no, they're complex now. Which led to a new complacency, which is, well, yeah, put a bit more sex and violence, and there you go, it's grown up. Doesn't matter how we explore the consequences of it, it's grown up, honest. So then it was the panel. And the panel started to become an ongoing internal monologue but a weirdly omniscient internal monologue batman is thinking to himself about the fight he's having it's almost like he's suddenly addressing us the parody of it this is, i remember somebody saying uh, this was something that really came in with frank miller it's associated with his style frank miller wrote the dark knight returns the one of the big deconstructionist works of the mid 80s and all that comes to mind is the parody of it, where somebody, he's in the middle of a fight. He's good. He's strong. He's young. And he's strong. Did I mention he's strong? And it's like, who are you talking to? This kind of reached a weird peak. Again, a few years ago, there's a writer called Grant Morrison, who's a divisive figure because he's he really came in in the immediate sort of post-deconstruction world. He came into American comics in the 80s. He's a Scottish writer. And he made waves, but some of the biggest waves he's made are within the last 10 years. He wrote this Batman comic where Batman's internal monologue has become much more bizarre and Batman runs into a fight and his thoughts are, there's one thing I can't stand, it's art without content. <laughs> he's fighting these giant bats and he's trying to rope one. I mean, for a start, we've got the fact this is happening in an art gallery with pop art. It's getting very postmodern and meta. You get a bit where Batman gets his grappling gun, holds it up, fires it, you get the blam sound effect. 
And then when he pulls it away, the blam sound effect is still there because it's painted on the wall behind in the art gallery. It wasn't for us. And he's pulling this giant bet and he's thinking, 600 pounds of meat and gristle. What does that remind me of? And we get a flashback to a Thanksgiving where the turkey was overcooked. (laughs) So to answer your question, yes, we do know their thoughts. And I think we could maybe do with occasionally seeing less of their thoughts. There's only one example I can actually think of, and it's in the generally piss-poor TNA promotion, where recently, within the last couple of years, you could actually hear one of the wrestler's thoughts in these backstage monologues, and it just got absolute piss taken out of it across Twitter and everywhere else. What I was actually thinking of there in terms of internal logic was one little twist that I quite liked that happened in WWF around about, I suppose you'd say probably about 97, 98. Before then, if you had anything that was happening backstage, then you'd need to come up with some sort of excuse as to why we're able to see this. So, for example, maybe you've got like a group of heels who are colluding and they've got some, you know, fiendish plan, and you might have sort of like the camera pointing over the corner of the hallway or something like this, and then from a long shot, and you're trying to pick up what they're saying and so on. WWF around about ninety-seven, ninety-eight, and a change of direction just decided that anything goes as far as what's happening if they want it to be seen on the screen as part of the storyline then you'll be there so to give you an example stone called steve austin one night he is laid up in hospital ill effects of a match from the night before and we see him in the hospital room and you think okay well that could be an ob crew okay that makes sense but we can also see outside of the hospital as well, and then we can see The Undertaker's car arrive, and then we can see The Undertaker kidnapping Steve Austin, and then we can see where he's taken Steve Austin and the fact that he's about to embalm him alive. Everything that we're seeing, the commentators can see and are commenting on it, but there's no explanation as to why we're able to see this. It's not like they're saying, oh, there's a camera guy and he's gone with them or anything like that. The camera is just there. That's the rule, and doesn't require any explanation because it's part of the internal logic of the program. And It's gone the other way around in comics. In comics now, the characters are constantly thinking to themselves in stuff that's narration, and the writers don't address us. If you read all the comics, the writer is going to... There's going to be a narration, but it's going to be a th- omniscient third-person narration. In fact, let me find... Talk a little more. I'm going to find you the best example. It's got a little bit of omniscient third-person narration, and it's also got Batman's first-person thoughts. It's one of my favourite comic book moments. So, sorry, back to your point. Okay, well, I'll give you an example of it going badly wrong. And, again, I keep on making reference to this company called TNA. TNA, by the way, stands for Total Non-Stop Action, although it originally, when they came up with the name, it was supposed to have connotations which have caused it sort of problems over the years in terms of its public perception. But anyway, TNA is an alternative product to WWE, and it is one which has a TV-14 rating as opposed to the TV-PG of WWE. Now, I was at one of their TV tapings a few months back in Glasgow. These things don't really happen too often in the UK, and certainly not in Glasgow, so I made a point of going to that at the Hydro. And they had a character a few months back, who was supposed to be like a stalker. He was targeting the ring announcer, Christy Hemi, who's ex-WWE and now TNA. And they had this video which played out as a package on the TV program and is also playing out in the arena so we can all see it as well and react to it. And it's showing you 
this guy with his sort of Christy Hemi collage shrine area. And she's there at the same time, but she's not supposed to have seen this. And all we're now clued in as to all oh, this guy's like a lunatic and what have you. Oh, I see. But the point was that Christy Hemi at that time was actually in the arena with all of us who were watching this on the big screen. And then carries on announcing the rest of the matches. Now, on, on the television, you're not aware that she's in the arena, so you're not aware that she's seen it. But first of all, obviously on Twitter and Facebook and the wrestling websites and so on, everybody was saying all saying the same thing. We were in Glasgow, we were in the audience. If we could all see it, how come she couldn't see it? And the wider point about that is that when you have, for example, two heels saying to each other, look, okay, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do this evening. When you're in this match with so on, okay, I'm going to make sure I've got your back. I'm going to make sure that this happens and so on. Uh, and they're discussing, you know, bits and pieces that are supposed to be off limits. Well, that's fine. And if the internal logic goes that we're able to hear and see that conversation, that's okay. But what you've got to bear in mind is that if that happened on a television program, then the person that they were discussing could also have heard that as well. And that's something that time and again crops up as something that's illogical in the shows that you hear these conversations you think ah that's their plan and you think well, okay well they're talking about person x and what they're going to do with person x later on so what if person x just had that conversation uh, the other five million people who are watching this show just heard just now so that that's when it does sort of crop up again and again okay now you've just sent me this little thing here okay this is on markway.com okay then it says here the panel launched a thousand grant morrison scripts now you have to explain that reference to me but okay spring pokes long green fingers along one of gotham city's poshest avenues one april day and then so so that's our third person omniscient narrator addressing us Right, okay. There's Batman in the background saying, and he's thinking, sheer magic, winter's over, and pretty girls are blossoming like flowers, delicious. So he's thinking and he's in the background, okay. And then the narrator's back again, and he says, yes, the Batman digs this day the beauty of his beloved Gotham, but as he rounds a corner, he bumps into a bit of urban ugliness. The rest of the story's going to take off from there. So we have our narrator knows what's going to happen, and he's addressing us. Batman's thoughts are for himself, and this is a Bob Haney story. So it's the middle of the afternoon, and Batman is just walking down the street checking out girls because... Because. (laughs) And also the fact that, yes, the Batman digs this day. (laughs) That's slightly off-kilter hipster talk. (laughs) Now, okay, let me ask you this, because I sense another similarity coming up here. If it plays a part, I suspect it will do. How does humour fit into the comic book world and how humorous are attempts at humour generally? Right, well, here we come to our great parting of the ways. So as I said, Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen. Massive shift in the way things are. Of course, I'm talking here as somebody who was initially a DC expert. I'm sure a Marvel expert would bring Marvel examples, but it's that thing. So Batman becomes meaner, more psychologically tortured. Superman becomes kind of a wimp because people are trying, not necessarily succeeding, but trying to write morally complex stories. Superman, who is the four-square fellow who will always do the right thing, becomes difficult to write, and so they kind of fudge it. It seems to me that modern-day Superman is always suffering and going, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, oh, I can fly, woe is me, in a badly written Superman story. And they take other characters, so... Green Arrow, who had initially just been a Batman clone and was 
very, very one-dimensional. In the 70s, he became more political. And in the 80s now, his title is Mature Readers Only because it is violent. He kills people. There are real drug dealers and real prostitutes in his title. But there is this variety of... We then get the Justice League, which is a bunch of superheroes all teamed together, usually the most successful. They take a different approach to the deconstruction. You do get upset and problems behind the scenes and tears and anguish. But their big thing is that they take the the main setup, okay, here's a bunch of superheroes living and working together, and turn it into a sitcom. So uh, at least a couple of them are a, they're a pair of idiots who are just like a couple of dozy lads being superheroes and keep getting get-rich-quick schemes <laughs> and stuff like that. And the, the, the Green Lantern who works for them is, is a real macho idiot so there's this variety of tone in late 80s dc so they had the grim they had the humor and somewhere along the line and as it dragged on into the 90s and the 90s just seemed to get all the wrong lessons from the 80s sex violence grim extreme that means what we're reading is meant for grown-ups and it got more adolescent and around about the mid 90s i pretty much gave up on superhero comics just started occasionally reading independent stuff and not really superhero stories. Eventually I found stories about real life got just as tiresome. Relentless adolescent negativity. If anybody knows any really good real life comics that have shifts in tone, I'd I'd like to know about that because I've not had much luck asking people about it. So then DC, with its constant fear of looking Pollyanna-ish, And they're always looking at Marvel, because after a while, Marvel became number one. Marvel stayed number one. Marvel are still generally number one. DC might pull ahead occasional months when they have an event, but Marvel are number one. And DC are always looking, going, what have they got that we haven't? Or what have we got that they haven't? And that became a problem. There's a writer called Chris Sims, who's a comic critic, who's also heavily into wrestling. And he said that you look at the history of DC, and they keep looking and saying, "What what have we got they haven't? Right, we have all these different universes and different Earths. Let's get rid of it. So they did. Mid-80s, they sort of said, right, there's only one Earth. But what about those early Superman cards? They didn't happen. What about the characters who, you know, they went out of print and then they came back as different ideas? Right, okay, those guys did start in the 40s. So there was a 1940s version of The Flash. And then he stopped. And then we had our modern day version of The Flash. So you then get this idea of the legacy character. And that becomes what DC has that other people don't have. And about three years ago, they got rid of that. Right, no, everything's restarting. All of the issues restarted at number one. And we're talking going up to like 700, 800 issues. Titles that have been going since 1935. Right, no, okay, that's it. Ends about 835. Stop. Start again, number one. And no, there aren't any legacy characters. Superheroes started five years ago as far as this story's concerned. Because Marvel don't have that endless legacy stuff that was supposed to be a good jumping on point for people and it was also a very good jumping off point and that's when suddenly i'm not buying as much dc in fact i'm not buying anything set in their main universe not as a protest not as a boycott i just went away on the other side of the street marvel who for a while had turned me off because they seemed to buy into the whole extreme stuff of the 90s and I would hear people in comic shops. Wolverine's better than Batman because Wolverine just like kills people. 
which was not a great advert for Marvel Comics for me. I'm, they might have been completely unfair, but that was the wall between me and them. Somewhere along the line, Marvel's tone has shifted. And they have a couple of times said, no, we're going to be a little brighter, a little more optimistic. And I'm now buying a few of their titles because there's a variety. Buying Daredevil. Daredevil is doing the urban vigilante thing with a little bit of anguish, organized crime, senior side of life. But then there's She-Hulk, which is very humorous. Young female lawyer, shades of Ally McBeal, um, and she also has all the same powers as the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and there's Miss Marvel, which is a young Muslim girl in New York suddenly finds she has superpowers. She wants to go to the parties with the cool kids. And also she has superpowers. And her parents are really strict Muslims. It's a different set of problems. <laughs> so now Marvel, to me, are what DC were like in the late 80s and early 90s. They've got a variety of tone. They got a lot easier to get into. But I'm going to say that if you if you asked in a comic shop, a lot of people would still, oh, well, D DC's just all fluff and optimism and Marvel's like gritty and Wolverine like just kills people. Well, it does take a long time for people's perceptions or perhaps misconceptions about things to, to die away. And yeah, that, I mean, that kind of thing can last for 10 or 20 years once it's been established. But DC are turning themselves inside out. No, we're really grim. We're really grim. And one of the jokes is always going on about DC is that they just love people having their arms ripped off. So they've become this bizarre parody of all the worst excesses of the 80s and 90s. But then it's not meant to be a parody. This is meant to be serious. And this is meant to be adult. Somebody, a writer artist called Paul Pope, had a proposal for DC. And he said, I want, I want it to be an all ages book. All ages basically means fun for all the family. Not necessarily talking down, not necessarily cutesy. can be a cracking adventure yarn, but you can give it to pretty much anybody and it will be suitable for them. He didn't get very far into this. Whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. We don't do books for children at DC. We write books for 45-year-olds. If you want to write a children's book, you can work on Scooby-Doo. That is the mindset at DC. We're doing books for adults and books for adults have violence and blood and people shouting at each other. And why aren't we number one like Marvel? And it is a weird thing. Marvel have changed tone. And the, the, they were number one when they were doing the absurdly gritty stuff. They're number one when they're doing every kind of book they can think of. You want humor? You've got humor. You want a bit, a bit of semi-realism? We'll do so. They're, they're basically doing the reconstruction now. We've had the deconstruction. We've had that, yes, they'd be all messed up and horrible. So let's take all those criticisms on board and do... New stories. New stories about saying, yes, but the struggle between good and evil is a real thing. And there are altruistic people out there. The king of that at DC Comics was Grant Morrison. And he had this, when he was saying, why did that say this is the panel that launched a thousand Grant Morrison stories? He started writing Batman about eight years ago. And he had this thing, of he just looked at all the Batman comics from 1939 and said, let's get everything into the character which means the grim urban vigilante stuff it means the light-hearted stuff where he's, it's batman and robin just like you saw on the tv it means the wild and crazy science fiction stuff and it also means batman's walking down the street checking out the girls all of this happened to one man what kind of man would he be and he managed to tell batman stories that took at least a slightly positive turn on the character now, there's a few things that you mentioned there, which, again, I must admit, I've stopped sort of keeping count of the specific number of similarities. 
by this point. But I'm getting the impression that there's quite a few, again, there's quite a few overlaps here. One you said there, for example, about sort of resetting, we'll go back to year zero and so on. Now, that occasionally has happened in pro wrestling, but more often than not, and it was something that used to afflict WCW in particular, to the point where it just sort of had this reputation that this was just something it always did, was that storylines would begin and uh, just tail off. Yeah, DC did it every 10 years. From 1985, every 10 years, it'd be like, oh, there's been a cosmic crisis and everything's different. Oh, sorry, the last cosmic crisis complicated things, didn't it? Let's reset it a little bit again. And then it ended with, bam! Right, total definite year zero. And it still stumbled out of the block, but I'll explain in a bit. It wasn't so much that WCW would ever explain why a storyline had abruptly come to an end. There was never anything like that. It was just that, bear in mind, I mean, the average pro wrestling show in these days is normally about sort of three hours long on American cable TV, and you may have something like 12 or 13 or 14 individual segments, and you've got, obviously you've got an A plot, which normally kicks off the show and concludes the show, but then you've got B, C, D, and E plots, and so on and so on, with all of your cast of characters. And WCW back in the day had this amazing knack of being able to start storylines, and then just ends. Just, I mean, it's not, not that it ends in any in any particular way. You don't know that it's ended, because you just think, oh, maybe they didn't continue that storyline this week, but maybe it's coming back next week, and then it doesn't. So you get sort of oddities like that. And in terms of humour... This is a bit of a sticking point. I've heard so many wonderful little stories about wrestling and wrestlers over the years. So many hilarious stories about just the things that they've, they've got up to, or just things that have happened in, in matches that perhaps weren't meant to happen. If you take like particular two guys who are witty and are good at sort of ad-libbing and so on, and just put them together in a sort of relaxed atmosphere, then you're going to get some very, very humorous sort of anecdotes or situations come out of that. For whatever reason, when pro wrestling attempts to actually engineer humour, it comes off, more often than not, it comes off not just badly or in an unfunny way, it comes across as, you know what it's like when, if you're in a room full of people and whatever's on the television was something that you wanted to have on there, and everybody else in the room knows that it was something that you wanted to have on there, and then there'll be a point in the programme at which you just start getting sweaty palms and you start thinking, you know, people are now sort of looking at you and thinking, you actually sit and watch this shit? What the hell is this? Now, it's usually in, in wrestling, it's usually the humorous bits that are the bits where if you're in that situation, that's when you're going to get the horrible ill ease feeling, my God, I wish there was nobody else in this room but me. And these days, more often than not, it will be, I mean, a character who's around these days is called Santino Morella and he's a sort of light relief supposedly in the shows and he'll come along and he's got like a sock that he puts on that's a snake and then all the snakes come to life and so on I was just stupid shit whenever I do watch wrestling these days which is not particularly often if it's on the Sky Plus as soon as I see him he's like my train nothing against him personally don't know the first thing about him personally but as soon as I see him turn up he's my cue for the fast forward because I know that whatever situation or whoever else is going to be on screen with him i know it's just going to be some absolute crud another thing which has caused the problems for wrestling over the years is the appearance of third parties this is something that vince mcmahon jr was particularly keen to secure because he effectively bet the entire farm 
on a show called WrestleMania in 1985. There's no pay-per-view to speak of at that time, so it was going to be going out on closed-circuit TV at venues across the US. And if that show had failed, then that probably would have been the end of WWF, effectively. Now, it didn't fail, of course. It was a huge success. But in order to make sure it was a huge success, he tried to get as many celebrities on board as possible. Mr. T was part of that show, and of course he was in the most popular primetime drama series of the day, The A-Team, and he had Cindy Lauper, who, of course, was our peak in terms of her musical career at the time. Having the endorsement of people like... <laughs> well, we'll come to him I'm later sorry, on. I just keep expecting us to start naming our kind of people. <laughs> but no, so he had... Honestel. Having the endorsement... Felix so, Having the endorsement of people from outside normal wrestling circles, pro wrestling tended to have not the best reputation amongst... TV companies, advertisers in particular, I mean, you, know, you they don't tend to sort of, you don't tend to get the sort of the ABC1 demographic often watching pro wrestling. So the populist demographic that doesn't necessarily go for the, the high spending products. So having those celebrities on board helped them to establish themselves as a big player and they like to see themselves, WWE in particular these days likes to see themselves as a big player. They want to see their name, I mean they're, they're a public company now, they've been for over 10 years and they like to see their name next to other big companies' names. They want to see their name up there alongside MLB and NFL and so on. problem that they've had with having celebrities on board and I'd be interested to know if you can think of any examples of celebrities suddenly turning up in comic books. I suspect there might have been the odd occasion of this. Is there's a point at which when they step over the line, then you have basically made a mockery of your own product. WCW in 1999 had Jay Leno on one of the pay-per-view shows. Now, that's a hell of a book and that's a great piece of work to be able to get Jay Leno, you know, bloody host of the Tonight Show and what have you, to get him to endorse your product, having their guys turn up on the Tonight Show in order to promote the show in itself, and then having him return in favour and come along to the show. Fantastic. Problem is that he was in the damn match. And there he is in the ring with Hulk Hogan, putting an armbar on Hulk Hogan, and Hulk Hogan selling it. As soon as that happens, as soon as you overstep the mark, then you have... Probably not actually sold a single extra ticket because, let's face it, you know, people who watch Jay Leno of an evening on his talk show not necessarily going to stump up $50 to see a wrestling pay-per-view because he's in it as well. And as far as your core audience is concerned, you've just pissed all over them because you're supposed to be able to suspend your disbelief. I can suspend my disbelief to the point where these two guys who are well-built athletes can knock seven bells out of each other and still be able to get up at the end of the day and maybe hobbling back. I can suspend my disbelief for that. I cannot suspend my disbelief to the point where I think that somebody who's not an athlete can get in there and mix it with athletes. Jay Leno actually stepped into a wrestling ring, then they'd be able to put him in a hold within about three seconds and get him tapping. The question I want to ask you, so right, you've got TNA, WCW, WWE. Are there any of these companies that you would say are in some way ashamed of themselves and ashamed of their product? Do you mean putting out a product which they themselves think is, is substandard in some way? Well, mean? one of the big controversies recently, I know it's going to sound like I'm ragging on DC. It's because I know DC better, and right now they're not reaching me. They might be doing titles that... I would like, but they're not really selling themselves on the reputation of those titles. They're selling themselves on the reputation of stuff that is turning me off. But we're going to have to go to the movies, because that's really now where the big battleground has become. The comics reach 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe only even tens of thousands of people in the US, what would be in the old days cancellation numbers is now a runaway hit. And it's at the movies now where Marvel are dominating because of their whole thing of doing an interlocked universe of films. So when people went to see The Avengers, or Avengers Assemble as it was in the UK, they weren't going to see just that film about The Avengers. They were going to see the culmination of, what, six different films? Because we'd seen Iron Man and we'd seen Thor, we'd seen Captain America, all being set up in their films. And I, I can't remember if Avengers came out after the second Iron Man film. Meet this guy, meet this guy, meet this guy. They brought in the Incredible Hulk, but it wasn't really following on from any of the films about the Incredible Hulk. And you're seeing this interlocked universe. That was one of Marvel's big innovations, actually, in the 60s. For much as I talk about the DC universe and all the interactions, Marvel had really been much more active when they restarted in the 60s and of saying these characters all know each other and they interact and they fight as well as getting on. You might have little crossovers in the DC universe, but it took a while for them to really develop the idea that, yes, something that happens in one title might affect something that happens in another title. And particularly when they collapsed all their universes down into one, that became a really big thing. And it was very interesting with the wild variety of tone in DC, because as well as the superhero stuff, they've got kind of like fantasy, magical, more grown-up, titles it's that stuff that's like mature readers only and yet this is happening in the same place as some of the lighter stuff to the extent that at one point dc had a defined hell and a defined lucifer we knew what the devil looked like and we kept seeing him turn up in different titles and he was in the more magically based mature stuff but they published an origin of one of their kids' comedy characters, Stanley and his monster, which I think you can tell what that's about. But the idea was that the monster had actually been a demon who was too nice, and he would go to the lake of fire and bring everybody ice cream, so he was cast out of hell by Lucifer. But it's the same Lucifer who's in the titles that you can't give to your kids. I loved that. <laughs> what a, you know, it's a big, big world. But, right, sorry, sorry, I've, I've completely gone off my topic. One of the recent controversies in superhero movies was Man of Steel, a Superman film in which Superman is an outsider and he's downcast and the, apparently the colour palette was washed out. I didn't go and see it because the trailers didn't excite me. And it ends with, spoilers, Superman gets the bad guy, the bad guy saying, you'll never stop me, and so Superman breaks his neck and kills him. This has been a controversial move among fans of Superman because there is this feeling that Warner, DC behind it, don't really like having Superman. I mean, they like having the most famous superhero of them all, but Superman's nice and optimistic. And how do you deal with a character who's nice and optimistic? That's not grown up. Okay, well, in that case... Yes, there is an example. No, I, I wouldn't phrase it in the way that you phrased it, as in, are they embarrassed in some way? But they're funny, actually, you should bring up that topic because it's very, very topical. It's very relevant in the wrestling business today because WWE over the years, and particularly under the auspices of Vince McMahon, I mean, I keep on talking about Vince McMahon, but basically. Vince McMahon is WWE, and he's now getting to the stage where he's, you know, I don't know if he's ever actually going to retire, but 
He's potentially going to then hand over control of the business to his daughter and her husband, who is and was a wrestler for the last 20-odd years or so. So at some point, Vince McMahon is going to sort of loosen his grip on the product. But basically, WWE is Vince McMahon, is in his image. And he always had this preference for well-built bodybuilder-type performers. He felt that people such as Hulk Hogan, for example, should be at the top of the card. They should be the public face of the company. It should be somebody who's a big, rugged, tough guy, and your card is absolutely full of all these guys who are all six foot plus and well-built and so on. Recently, a wrestler by the name of Brian Danielson, who goes under the name of Daniel Bryan in WWE, he started to come to the fore and started to get over really, really well with the audience. And he is a shorter and slimmer wrestler in comparison to a lot of the people who are at the top of the show. And for that reason, a lot of people suspected that he wasn't necessarily going to get the push that he deserved. I mean, in terms of his athleticism and his ability, he's an incredible performer. And in terms of his ability to have a good match, the saying that people often used in relation to a wrestler called Ric Flair was that he could carry a broom to a good match. And I would say that that probably applies to Daniel Bryan as well. But because of his sort of lack of stature, so to speak, a lot of people suspected that he wasn't getting the push that he deserved. And throughout last summer and into the autumn, they actually went through this sort of storyline, which was effectively sort of teasing the audience, saying, oh, we're going to put the title on Daniel Bryan. No, we aren't. Okay, we are now. No, we aren't. Well, okay, yeah, last couple of times, okay, yeah, we might have fooled you, but this time, no, we aren't. It got to the point where the fans in the arena were being so audible and the people on the internet so vociferous that eventually at WrestleMania, which is the show of the year and is the culmination of everything that has happened in the year before, Daniel Bryan was there at the end of the show, title aloft, and he closed the show as champion. People have speculated that's not necessarily where Vince McMahon or some other people in charge of the product necessarily wanted it to go. As a matter of fact, they actually brought in a guy called Dave Batista, who had retired a few years earlier, and he came back in at the beginning of the year, and he is a seriously well-built guy, you know, like massive arms and what have you. It's funny the way it happened, actually, because a poster with his image on it leaked in advance on the internet. People were clued in that he was going to be the surprise entrant in a particular show in January. So when he came back, it didn't have quite the impact that they were expecting it to, and he was just booed out of the building. No matter what he did, the audience was just not going to be on his side. I think there's an argument to say that some people in WWE right now would rather not have Daniel Bryan in such a prominent position as he is, but at the same time, they've got to take on board the views of the audience. And the audience says, no, we want what we want. He's our guy and he's who we came to see. If you try and give them something else, they can potentially hijack the show because you don't want to close your show with an audience or an arena full of people booing. It doesn't look good on television. It doesn't portray the image that you want. And ultimately, if you piss people off enough, as WCW found out to the cost, of course, if you piss people off enough, eventually they just stop coming. And it sounds like you know, you've gone through that sort of process yourself sometimes. I think one of the problems sometimes. was there came a point when things grew up a little and people started telling stories saying, well, you know what? Life isn't about faces versus heels. Good point. Yes, interesting. 
Sometimes faces can be a bit heelish. Yeah, very interesting. And then it seemed to sort of, yeah, there, there, there aren't really any faces or heels. Then it gets to a point when, why am I bothering with this? Because it just goes to a different kind of one-dimensional. It's not so much that I don't like moral complexity, but it, it stopped being moral complexity. It's just a bunch of angry jerks scowling at each other all the time. And that's really the problem is, it's one thing to have a face who's... I mean, I, I presume that there are different degrees of faceishness and heelishness. Well, yeah, well this, well, this is the thing. I mean, when Hulk Hogan was at his peak, he was the face's face. That's who he was. I mean, his, his catchphrase was, say your prayers and take your vitamins. And he would never do anything that was remotely heelish. And funnily enough, in a high-profile match in 1992, I'm not entirely sure why they didn't think this would get the reaction that it did but in a match himself and two other performers were in the ring and Hulk Hogan was eliminated from the match by one of the performers and Hulk Hogan grabbed the arm of this guy Sid Justice and pulled him out of the ring as well and that was supposed to play out as if Hulk Hogan has been hard done by by this guy and Hulk Hogan was just sort of venting his anger in actual fact the audience booed Hulk Hogan that night and in any subsequent airing of that match, the audience has been redubbed to then fit the narrative that they were trying to get across at the time. Now, a few years after that, Hulk Hogan turned heel. And he himself was not even sure that he wanted to do this. And there's all manner of tales about him being sort of kept away from you know anybody around him and just sort of being kept under guard the night before and before the match in case somebody got in his ear and changed his mind and so on. But they convinced him and said, look, you know, your, your face character's passe. You need to do this to be able to extend your career. And he did it and he did it well. And it gave him a much, much longer career because people were just gobsmacked. It was like, what? You know, it'd be like Batman now being a heel, being the villain. But the thing is that two years after that... So you've had the face, you've had the heel switch. Two years after that, Stone Cold Steve Austin becomes the hottest property on the planet in terms of professional wrestling. And he was a face with attitude. He's a face who sticks a middle finger up and uses bad language and drinks beer and so on and so on. And he's got a core number of traits that ensure that he doesn't fall into heel category. So he doesn't overtly cheat, for example. He's not... Somebody who will always play by the rules, but he doesn't overtly cheat and obviously he doesn't grass on people and he doesn't go looking for shortcuts. There's, there's a sort of a code, an unspoken set of rules that say this guy is still a face. And I think that the reason I suggested that we had this discussion was that I'd noticed quite often in listening to, because honestly, I don't watch a great deal of wrestling these days, I do listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts, because podcasts seem to have suddenly, it's almost as if the wrestling business has suddenly discovered the existence of podcasts sort of 10 years after everybody else. And now all of a sudden, everybody's got a podcast. Steve Austin has a podcast, and Jim Ross, and so on. Jim Cornette, all these different people have suddenly now got their own shows. And they're all talking amongst each other. They're all talking to each other, and answering fans' questions and so on. And I'd noticed that on occasion that they did actually slip into discussions about comic books. And there seems to be quite a number of wrestlers who have got interests in comic books and that 
area and they're sometimes turn up at things like the conventions and so on. And I sent you a little clip of Jim Cornette talking about you know DC versus Marvel and and you sort of critique that as well, and you sort of listen with interest about how you know somebody else is perceiving it and so on. There seems to be a sort of a grey area in between the two, and it's like two sort of areas where at first they look completely separate, but I think that there are some areas in which there are natural sort of overlaps. And I think to go all the way full circle, I think ultimately it's still, no matter how it's presented or how it's dressed up or how many shades of grey there are, it still comes down to a battle between one entity and another and one who is supposed to be generally speaking a force for good and one who's a force for evil and i suspect that that's just a normal situation which is universal and so i don't really see any prospect of that changing in certainly not in pro wrestling and i presume not really changing in the comic book universe it's hard to tell it's all up in the air now it remains to be seen what's happening dc did its big relaunch in an attempt to get a bigger share of the market and now it's found its numbers keep creeping back down to the the levels they were at before they did the relaunch so they tend to do a big event one big event after another but now that's got fatigue is going to set in there marvel of course are now dominating the the superhero movies dc's answer has to has been so far do the grim and gritty thing and now of course the, the thing that's going to launch their big universe is batman versus superman and we're getting the idea that Batman's going to fight Superman, he's going to snarl at him, tell him he's a loser. It remains to be seen. Because if that dies, if that does badly, this bubble's going to burst in the cinema, I think. I don't think superhero comics are going away. I don't think superhero movies are going away, but they're going to dim a little. And it then remains to be seen how the big players are going to react to that. And of course we have the whole thing that Marvel are now owned by Disney, and this talk, I mean, I think they did bring Thor into Disneyland, a little corner, and Iron Man. But what are Disney going to want to do with their intellectual properties? How's that going to affect the stories that are told? I haven't even brought in all the independents and smaller. No, companies. I mean, the, the, yeah, listen, I haven't touched at all on the British wrestling scene, which is. I think it's fair to say, without sounding overly cynical about it, we've had a, a lot of people over the last 25, 26 years, ever since World of Sport Wrestling ended on ITV, we've had a lot of people claiming to be the the second coming of British wrestling, and it's never really happened. But good luck to them, and I know that there are a couple of places that are active in Scotland right now who are doing quite well. But I want to conclude on this point because this is one bit of the wrestling business which got me back into it after a little period where I'd been sort of out of sorts in the mid-1990s. This got me back into it hugely and I'm really intrigued to know if there is anything compatible with this in the comic book universe. In the mid-1990s we had for a six-year period, although really at its absolute peak, it was around about sort of two or three years or so, we had what was called the Monday Night Wars and what happened was that WWF was on cable TV on Monday evenings and WCW was sort of early evening on TBS on Saturdays. And Ted Turner made the decision that they were going to go head to head with WWF. So they were going to put their show on at exactly the same time on the same night as WWF Raw. And they did it remarkably well they chose a week which raw was preempted to debut so obviously had a big audience to begin with and then 
committed an act which was so heinous that I think you could probably say that it was worse than anything that any heel had ever done in the wrestling business to that date. They went on air, show number two, the first time that they were opposite WWF. They went on air three minutes early and read out the results of the taped WWF show that was going out that night on the USA Network because their show was live. And Eric Bischoff, who was the brains behind WCW at that time, social commentator, would do this week after week after week. He would come on and say, okay, everybody, WWF's in the can. Here's the results. Bang, bang, bang. Right, our show is live, so you can't possibly know what's going to happen here. Stick with us. This pissed off WWF immensely. I mean, they, they just thought this is the lowest of low blows. Throughout the next few years, you had sort of back and forth. You had talent switching different sides and so on. And you even on one famous occasion had some of the WWF performers go to the Norfolk Scope arena where WCW were performing and you know try and get into the arena and try and make out the WCW were a bunch of cowards because he wouldn't come out and face them and so on and you just had all this kind of business going on and so I mean have you ever had anything to the effect where for example has there ever been anything like a comic book spoiler that's come out in advance of like a last part of a story or anything like that there was it wasn't a matter of a low blow I'm trying to think of anything quite so ungentlemanly, but not really. You you do get people trying to imitate what the others are doing and sometimes getting theirs out first, but nothing quite so vicious. But there was a situation in 1991. Comic books would publish annuals, but they're not like the British annuals, hardback books. They were just thicker comic books, and they came out in the summer, not for Christmas. And one thing that... DC did, I don't know about Marvel because this was at a time I wasn't reading Marvel, was they'd have a crossover between all the annuals. So buy them all and you'll get a complete story. Or they'll all be linked by a certain theme. Buy them all just for the sake of that. And they had a story running through the annuals called Armageddon 2001. And we had a flash forward to 2001 and we found out that all the superheroes were dead. And one superhero had gone bad and had taken over the world. And this character from 2001 gets superpowers so he can travel through time and he can read the destinies of the superheroes. So he goes back to 1991 and the idea is he goes from annual to annual and he finds out what their future is going to be like. And of course you can tell this story and say, ah, but of course in the, right at the end everything got changed because of this guy doing his super stuff. So we can tell stories that don't really affect anything. So we had Superman go bad again. Superman had three annuals, so they had to keep saying, oh, uh, yeah, I think actually I might have changed the future, so I better go and read Superman's Destiny. Oh, it's different. <laughs> Batman only had two, so it was a similar situation. It's like, well, what? surely you just end up going back through everybody because <laughs> you'd be different every time, but no. The big question was, which one of the heroes is going to go bad? And I don't know if it leaked, or I don't know if everybody just worked out by looking, well, whose title's getting cancelled? <laughs> but after a while, it became obvious that it was going to be Captain Atom. He was the one who'd gone bad. And because this information had leaked, and this is before the internet, <laughs> it's like, okay, let's change it. Right, okay, no, no, actually, you're wrong. It's not Captain Atom. It's Hawk of Hawk and Dove. Yeah, you didn't see that coming. But hang on a minute, we already saw what Hawk and Dove's future... No, no, it's not, no, no, it's a, yeah, fooled you. And it was like, who cares about Hawk? <laughs> If I made a comparison with any real-life figure, it would be a massive slam on that figure. Okay, let's do it corporate, then. Which one 
of the ITV <laughs> regional franchises is going to go evil. <laughs> well, everybody knows it's ATV, but well, actually, no, no, it's Border. Yeah, yeah that surprised you. <laughs> It was a situation like that, and I apologise to anybody in Border because they did a damn good job while they were still there. That was the situation. Uh, The ending was stupid (laughs) because the cliffhanger had been set up. It was going to be Captain Atom. I think possibly even the first few pages had been written. It's like, right, so we've got to somehow get it from Captain Atom to Hawk. It was a really terrible ending. It was like, you know, to be honest, I would rather read the ending that I knew was coming because at least it would be a better story. Well, that in in wrestling speak is known as the swerve, and some writers over the years have tended to favour that outcome and say, give them what they least expect. And on one occasion, this was presented to this rather gruff wrestler who then became Booker, writer, as it would be today, called Ole Anderson. And this outline of this match was presented to him. And he said, well, why the hell would I do that? That's, you know, that doesn't make any sense. And he was told, because that's not what the audience will be expecting. You know, you want to swear of them. And he said, okay, right. How about I go into the ring and I pull down my trunks and I just take a massive shit right in the middle of the ring? Because no one's going to expect that. <laughs> now, if that ever happens involving Batman, do let me know. I'm sure I could find somebody who would argue that it it has to all intents and purposes. <laughs> well, it's been good fun chatting comics and wrestling, and perhaps in the future we will do, I don't know, maybe we'll do... Well, I might, maybe I should send you some comics. Maybe I should send you some wrestling programs. Indeed, yeah. I just need to find a way of... Mi- a, some sort of blind taste test, some sort of Pepsi challenge. Yeah. Where I use yeah. your ignorance so you don't necessarily know which company or what the reputation is. You just have to black out the bits that say DC Comics. Yeah. It's going to be more difficult for me. I'm going to have to basically use pixelation across a WCW broadcast. That's going to be difficult. But it's been good fun. Thank you once again for your support. Don't forget, if you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter at the Sitcom Club and you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with another of the Sitcom Club spin-offs. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be with you again soon.